0: Uh, We're in a series called God's Big Picture, and the point of the series is really a journey through the whole of the biblical narrative, the whole of the biblical account, looking at an overview, the big picture of God and God's dealings with people. It's based partly um, on this book, God's Big Picture, by Vaughan Roberts, and it's based entirely on this book. Uh, called the Bible, and if you (laughs) need to choose between them, I'd recommend this one, Um, but this is very helpful, Um, I believe there's still some of these available, Uh, and Vaughan very helpfully divides, if you like, the the story of God and his kingdom, both past, present and future, into various sections, various chapters, Uh, and this is a useful study guide, it has far more detail about the sorts of things I'm talking about today um, than I can possibly get in. Because I'm going to attempt to deal with a thousand years of history in half an hour, or something like that. Also very helpful um, is this book here, uh, The One-Stop Bible Guide by our very own Mike Beaumont. Uh, And if you want a slightly more pictorial, visual, and helpful summary of the sorts of approach that we're taking over these weeks, thematically looking at different stages in the account of God's dealings with his people then this is very helpful as well. Mike didn't ask me to say that, by the way. So, there's a number of ways we can try to systematize and organize thematically about what the Word of God tells us. Um, And one very powerful way is to look at the idea of the kingdom of God, which is a Perhaps not the only way, but it's a powerful unifying theme throughout the scripture. By the kingdom of God, we mean God's rule and reign being outworked through and with a people or people in a place and with a purpose. And that sort of framework is the way that we've chosen to look at these different studies. The kingdom of God is about God's rule of his people in a place for his purpose. And the story so far, we've looked at creation, the pattern of God's kingdom, we've looked at the kingdom perishing through crisis and the fall, and yet still in that seeing that God is committed to his people and to his purposes. And Al, very helpfully last week, set us up for this week by looking at The promise of God's kingdom in the covenants and promises that God makes to Abraham. The promise to Abraham is that he would be the progenitor of a people. A people who would be God's people. That he would put in a place, a land, and that the purpose for which... We not only to enjoy God's blessing, but to be a blessing to the nations around them. that the kingdom might increase and expand? <clears throat> now just a couple of other things before we look at this story, um, and that's about interpreting, or well, some keys to help us understand, particularly large chunks of the Old Testament. We have to understand in what we're dealing with this morning, it's not just a story, but it's a story within a story within a story within a story. And so, for example, if we looked at the story of um, the Hebrews escaping from Pharaoh across the Red Sea, that's a story in itself. It's a real favorite for a lot of people. But it's part of a bigger story about God's people under Moses being delivered from oppression which is part of a bigger story about God's people on a journey to this land to fulfill God's promise to Abraham, which is still part of a bigger story of the whole biblical account of God's dealings with his people. And sometimes we can focus on an individual story and forget that it's part of a bigger one, which is again part of a bigger one. And to get the significance of it, if you focus too much on the detail of one story without seeing where it fits with the bigger picture, uh, can be problematic. That's the first thing. Secondly, um, the details of any story in the Old Testament narratives particularly um, are often descriptive rather than prescriptive. They say what happened rather than perhaps what should have happened. And so we have to be a little bit careful about um, how closely we press the detail in following examples there's some great stuff about King David's life I'd love to follow, and there's some stuff I probably wouldn't. Nonetheless, warts and all, the Scripture records it for us. And the important things come out in the sweep of God's dealings rather than in all the details. The third thing is, can't really understand very much in the Old Testament without realizing that there's always in the narrative an element of looking forward to a reality that hasn't yet happened. And probably, if you were living at the time, you would have been dimly, if at all, aware of that. So in God setting up a sacrificial system for dealing with sin, it dealt existentially there and now, there and then, for those people's sin, but pointed to a bigger reality only fulfilled in Christ, which maybe the people at the time were not fully aware of. In all of these different sections we look through over the weeks, there's always a bigger picture that's forward as well as a present reality. And lastly, however we kind of divide it up and use a schema to sort of understand what's going on, we have to realize God. it's an account of God dealing with messy people. And so we can't be too tight about sort of fitting it into boxes and categories to try and explain it. It is organic, it's a living story that really happened with real, unpredictable people like you and me. Final thing I want to say is this, that God builds models. So does my brother, by the way, and this is his his model railway. And my brother and his friends... um, Uh, A local school let them use an attic building in this school. He lives in Denmark, and there's this big attic room, and he and a group of mates have built this model railway. I don't know Ruth, you've seen it. It's probably at least as long as the stage here. I mean, it's huge. And one guy does the scenery, another guy does the programming, another guy does all the electronics, and they can even run a timetable and program it into a computer, which sets the trains off, changes the points, puts the lights on and off, and all the rest of it. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, there are even some videos of it on YouTube if you want to see. It's just wonderful. There's a really good one where they put the camera inside the train as it went through the <laughs> went through the tunnel. Um, these are just a few of his many locomotives. Um, it really is wonderful. It's wonderful to see. And God likes to build models. As we shall see, models look like the real thing. They help define the real thing. They help the real thing to be understandable. They can even foreshadow the real thing. As, for instance, when aircraft designers build a model and put it in a wind tunnel to see if the thing's going to fly before they actually build a real one. But the models don't ultimately have the power and the substance of the real thing fully. Models are temporary, pointing forward to a bigger reality. And this part of the kingdom story about to look at is full of models. Temples, tabernacles, Ark of the Covenant, priests, robes, incense, animal sacrifices, pillars of cloud, blood smeared on door lintels, lots of hand washing and other purification rituals, etc., etc., etc. Visual aids models to be a reality but point to a bigger reality. We have to understand that. So, let's get to the story. Now... There have a problem here because it is a thousand years, so I set myself the task of recounting the story of a thousand years in a thousand words. okay so I've got my thousand words here, and yes, I did count them, and so you can probably I will read a little bit too quickly for you to count, but here it is: a thousand years in a thousand words. God called Abraham from Ur and promised him that if he obeyed God. If he obeyed, God would multiply his descendants, give them a land, so that they could be a blessing to the nations. Abraham tried to make it happen, and ended up having a child with his wife's maid, but eventually he and Sarah, his wife, had a son, Isaac. And God reaffirmed that promise to Isaac. Now, Isaac's son Jacob was a bit of a deceiver, but God dealt with that. He ended up having 12 sons, who became the fathers of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now, Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. Joseph was gifted in interpreting dreams, for the old men around him presumably but his brothers were jealous of him and sold him into slavery and he was taken to egypt joe joseph rose by his dream interpretation and a small spell in the prison to being pharaoh's right hand man and when famine hit the region he saved his own people when his family his father brothers and their families came to egypt to be fed now after joseph the hebrews stayed living in egypt The Pharaoh eventually got fed up with them, made them slaves, and ordered infanticide of the Hebrew male babies to stop the population from growing. Moses was born a Hebrew, escaped being killed, and grew up in the house of Pharaoh. Incensed at an Egyptian, abusing a fellow Hebrew one day, he killed the Egyptian and fled. He hung out in obscurity, being a shepherd for many years, until God encountered him in a burning bush and commissioned him to go and tell Pharaoh and demand he let the Hebrews go. Moses had a series of power encounter showdowns with Pharaoh. Each time, Pharaoh refused to let the Hebrews go, even in the face of increasing demonstrations of God's power against him. But finally, the Hebrews escaped Egypt after putting the blood of a lamb on a doorpost of their homes to protect them from a death angel that passed through the land of Egypt. The Hebrews took some of the wealth of Egypt with them and fled, following the Lord, who appeared in a pillar of fire and led them through the Red Sea. The Egyptians became furious and chased after them, but they drowned in the Red Sea. At Sinai, God made an agreement with the Hebrews. He promised that they would be his people. He would bless and protect them. And they promised to serve and obey him. God called Moses up the mountain and gave him the law by which the people were to live and to worship. However, the Hebrews, tired of waiting for Moses, rebelled and built a golden calf to worship. When Moses came down from the mountain, he got so upset that he broke the stone tablets on which the commandments were written. Moses pleaded with God, who forgave them, and issued a duplicate set of commandments. So the people set off following God's lead to the land that he promised. On the journey, the people kept doubting God and his promises and wanted to go back to Egypt and into slavery again. And when they got close to the land, they were too afraid to go into it. This lack of faith caused God to, give them, to take them on a rather indirect route, which took 40 years at an average speed of about 30 meters a day. That's about... It's less than the width of this building. But just before he died, Moses reminded the people that if they would obey God, they'd be blessed, but if they disobeyed, they'd be scattered and persecuted. Moses died having seen the land, but it was left to Joshua, his son, to lead them across the Jordan into the land. Over the next seven years... He led them into getting rid of idolatrous Canaanite people who lived there. However, they didn't do a complete job of this, and some of the Hebrews ended up marrying Canaanites and worshipping their idols. Nonetheless, they settled in the land and divided it up amongst them. And before his death, Joshua, like Moses, also warned the people of what would happen if they disobeyed God. However, subsequent generations fell into forgetting God's commands and becoming idolatrous, this would be followed by a foreign invasion and oppression. The Hebrews would then cry out to God for help. God would then send a judge or deliverer to save them. This cycle of events repeated itself over and over again for the next 300 years. So God raised up prophets to point the people back to him. But the people demanded a king like the nations around them. So God let them have a king. The first king, Saul, had an evil heart. So the Hebrews got a man who was like, him, like them because they had evil hearts. God rejected Saul because of his sin and Saul spent most of his life hunting down David trying to destroy him because he knew that David was the Lord's chosen one to take his place. When he was still a young boy David fearlessly killed the Philistine giant Goliath that's encouraging in the life of this morning who taunted the armies of God. God. David spent his early life running from Saul But finally, when Saul died, David was crowned king. David was a man after God's own heart and prioritized worship. However, he had failures in his personal and family life and made some poor leadership decisions. And because he was a warrior king, he was not allowed to build the temple, which he so longed to do. Solomon was the son of David who built the temple for worship in Jerusalem in the center of the land solomon pleased god by asking for wisdom to lead the people because of this god gave him great power and wealth and his fame was known throughout the world leaders came from other nations to seek his wisdom and wise advice and they all lived happily ever after in the land, living holy, righteous lives in loving obedience and worship to the God who loved them, enjoying his presence and blessing, and being a blessing to the nation around them and seeing more and more of them become God's people too. Perhaps not. And for that, we'll need to see next week. Okay, over to you, Simon. then. No. Um, so what do we make of that? That's the story. Thousand years and a thousand words, I think. From promise to partial fulfillment. God establishes his people in a place where they could fulfill his purpose. And that is to demonstrate God's presence. To model being God's people so that nations are blessed. But really the story is about the journey of getting there. And the twists and turns on the way. And it's that I want to look at. You see, becoming God's people... I'm sorry, let's just quickly look. Historically, if you're interested in reading this in the Bible, it'll probably take you between now and next week, but have a look at this. It starts with the people growing, flourishing, lots of them. That's essentially from Abraham to the rest of Genesis. The people's relationship with God, how to relate to God, and what God's like is the focus in Exodus and Leviticus. And then they set off for this journey to the land, through Numbers, Deuteronomy, and get in and settle, right up to about 1 Kings 11. Where it starts to, you'll have to see next week. Becoming God's people is about two things it's about becoming a people and becoming God's, belonging to Him. And as with any relationship, two important questions come out, and these keep coming out in way, one way or another with God's people who is this God and what is He like? And how should we live? When any relationship starts, the gossip around, saying, oh, what's he like? What's he like? What's he like? And for the person concerned, you think, oh, had I better change some things about the way I live? Really important questions. It's really that I want to focus on and follow through. Who is this God and what's he like? And how should the people therefore live? So, what's God like? And through the story, and really I'm just summarizing a huge amount here, God shows himself to be faithful. He keeps his word and promises, despite often the circumstances and choices that are set up by the people. When Moses encounters God... He comes out of obscurity and encounters God. He wasn't looking for it. It just happened in a burning bush. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God who your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, what's his name, what shall I say to them? Moses saying, who are you? Who are you? Who are you, God? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And then he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered through all generations. I'm sure you know um, there's a bit of a play on words there, but I am who I am, and I am sent me. It's all to do with the phrase, to be. I love David Pawson's translation of it. He simply says it means always. He's always the same. He's always faithful. He's always loving. He's always merciful. He's always holy. He's always right. He's always, 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 always unchangingly faithful. And of course, the answer to Moses' question, God says, I am always the God whom I gave the promises to. Abraham, Isaac. Faithful. Had this come out this morning. Sovereign. God is boss. Is that what you said this morning, Graham? He's gone out with the kids. Did Graham say that this morning? He did. He's in charge. God reveals himself through circumstances as sovereign, able to use the circumstances that weren't necessarily chosen or even wanted by the people concerned, and sometimes even despite the choices that they made. For his bigger purposes, God is sovereign. Abraham tried to manufacture the answer to God's promise, but God stepped in and gave him a son. Jacob, despite his flawed character, ended up being used by God to cause the people to flourish in increase When Joseph was in Egypt, he didn't choose the circumstances that got him there and kept him there. All the circumstances and trials that he went through and yet God in his sovereignty raised him up as part of the bigger plan. And indeed... One way of translating the title, the Lord God, which Moses uses to speak to God and which God uses to describe himself to Moses is the sovereign Lord. We also find that he is gracious and merciful. When Moses, and Moses is a key figure in a lot of this really, asks to see God's glory, and of course, glory means the weight or the substance of someone's presence. What are you really like? What are you really like? Glory is kind of like the oomphness of it, there and then, can't miss it. He passes before him in Exodus 34 saying, The Lord, he could have said a number of things. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. This God who there had called them and put in place promises for Abraham, there was an ongoing and growing understanding of what he was like, who this was that they were as a people being called to relate to. That he's powerful. Can't miss that in this story. Time and time again, he delivers his people powerfully and saves them from enemies for the sake of his purposes. In all sorts of weird, fantastic, and wonderful, but unavoidably powerful ways. And finally... People get a growing understanding that he is a holy God, that he's different, separate, untainted, morally pure, right, and that comes out time and time again in the story. In Leviticus 19, too god says to moses speak to the entire assembly of people that's everybody so they don't miss it so they don't understand it and actually this wasn't the first time be holy because i the lord your god am holy let's pause and reflect just for a minute i'll leave those up there is our view of what our god and if we're part of his people is like Is our view of what he is like too narrow? Are we in danger of focusing on the bits which are obviously beneficial to us? That he's gracious and compassionate. That he's faithful. Those are all true. And I love that our worship songs have a high element of those. But do you know his power is not contained and under our control. I love to reflect on God's power when it's working for me. But it's possible he might be powerful in ways I might not like, and his holiness is a constant challenge. Let's just reflect from it. See, just whether God might want to challenge you about how, whether our view of this God has been a little bit too narrow. So, to come in, take a minute to do that. It would be possible to understand those things about the character of God. But one thing, there's a growing sense that this God is knowable. And like Moses encountered him face to face. That David, when you read his Psalms, understood that whilst God was sovereign and enormously powerful and holy and other and different, he was nonetheless knowable and relational. So, moving on. Becoming God's people is becoming, his, becoming a people and understanding who God is. It's also understanding how then should God's people live. And if I can summarize us up in one word and it's a word that's not very popular and it's this dependency. Not a popular word in our culture. Adam and Eve's big mistake was to go for and prize autonomy and independence and self-determination. And my right to exercise in independence and autonomy is a bit of a mark of this age. Actually it's a clear mark of sort of Western post-Enlightenment thinking isn't necessarily there at all times, in all cultures, in quite the way that it, we have it at the moment. But God's people are different. In restoring partially the mess of the fall and the rebellion of that, God restores his people in a relationship of dependency. And actually, some people react to that. Let's unpack it a little bit. God's people don't relate to him as equal partners with an equal say in how the relationship goes or the terms by which it's undertaken. There's loads of great stuff on out there in the web at the moment about how to negotiate your relationships. That's wonderful. There's, I suspect there's some good advice there. It's just it doesn't work with God. He doesn't really let his people negotiate the terms on which they relate to him. He is gracious, but he's not malleable in that sense. This is the basis of his covenants, agreements on how to live together. And the thing about God's covenants with man is they're entirely of his initiative. So what does dependency look like? Well, it may not be so bad following his lead and wherever they went it was because there was even a physical a physical model of leading pillars of cloud pillars of fire during the wilderness particularly but dependence does mean following God's lead not just in change of location but in change of any sort Dependency means living by God's law. And there's a whole year of sermons on this. The law, and it was so important to God's people, that once they'd got it, they took it with them, wherever they went. They did end up losing it, which is part of next week's story. It probably wasn't wise, in that it was so central to this whole narrative an understanding of living god's way but what we can miss is why god wants them to live that way see the old testament law if we're not careful we so emphasize god's grace and a new law written on our hearts a law of the spirit of life we can so emphasize that we actually miss what the law was for in the first place The law reflects a model of being different and being like God, relating to him on his terms, that is being holy. The law defines what it is that sin is. We have to be a bit careful that we don't self-define culturally what we think is offensive to God. I say that again we have to be careful and there's a growing sense if we're not careful of we ourselves defining what should be offensive or perhaps offensive to God and perhaps excluding some other things which he may define so but the law decides for us what is offensive to God revealing God's holiness and the people's sinfulness of course our understanding the New Testament says it doesn't actually have any power to change anything it's just there to show something I say this, and Maria really helpfully reminded me of this, the law given reflects God's love for his people and it keeps them from harm. All of the consequences of Adam and Eve's bid for autonomy were not good. And in trying to put that right and model something different, it is for the people's blessing not chains of bondage for them interesting if you looked at 1 Corinthians 13 4, the well known passage about love love is patient love is kind love is, and so on and substitute the word law into that you have a different perspective law does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth the law protects always trusts always hopes but it comes from a father who loves his people enough to put boundaries of moral rights and wrong around them. Now, those of you who are parents understand that a little bit. Just a little bit. Hopefully, we love our children enough not to let them just self-determine all the time. Am I getting a few nods? I'm getting one. One. I'm getting one from a headmaster over there. That's helpful. (laughs) We love our kids enough not to let them completely self-determine and put some boundaries in. But hey, as Steve Short helpfully pointed out, it's all in the tone of voice. Is it, you shall not steal. Or, don't steal. Really, don't. It messes you up. Living by God's law. There is a way to live that pleases God and there's a way to live that doesn't please God. Receiving God's blessing was how should people live? And there's loads about God providing materially for his people. God's blessing is another huge thing. It's about his provision. It's about his protection. It's about his peace. It's about blessing them with his presence. There's a few Ps in there. along along with partial as well. God's provision, God's peace, God's protection, God's presence. But I want to focus on two or three things that come out very clearly. Part of God's provision for his people is the provision of rest. Rest from labor and rest for relationship. Rest from work and rest for relationship. Relationship with God, relationship with community. And maybe a little challenge for some of us. Actually, are we receiving God's blessing? Provision of rest. But the biggie is, part of God's blessing in restoring his kingdom sort of program is provision for salvation both deliverance from evil and harm for his people, which comes out again and again and again in the story, but also provision for forgiveness for their sins. And whilst forgiveness in God's economy is always brought about by a sacrifice, and you can argue that it's most elaborately modeled in the Pentateuch, all of that elaborate modelling points forward to a deeper reality of the atonement, foreshadowing the atonement bought for us by Christ. But let's not miss out that receiving forgiveness is part of the part of God's blessing for his people. I believe God wants to bless some people this morning by you receiving his forgiveness. Very simple. There is provision. For forgiveness from a holy god who calls his people to be holy there is nonetheless he has worked into the system as it were with these people a model that they might be forgiven for their sins living in god's presence on the journey they built a tabernacle this portable place where the presence of god was and god could be met with and when they got to the land they built a bit more of a permanent one called a temple Reminder to them, but they had daily reminders in other ways that God's people live mindful and dictated not dictate, much dictated to, but centered around the fact that the living God was living and with them. You see, it's possible, particularly in Greek thinking, this term the living God to I mean God's alive but somewhere else, God is. Alive and active, or fine, but nothing to do with what's going on here. Amongst God's people, the living God, one of his titles means he's living inactive in space and time, here and now, not just somewhere else in the universe. And God's people are those that understand and live by the fact that God is living amongst them. And finally, living rightly in community. So much of The law that was given to them was to deal with issues of living together rightly. Justice, right dealings, care, compassion, and all those other things. Moral, individual conduct, civil, living together, communally conduct, and ceremonial laws to do with living rightly before God and making sure that's right. And if I can bounce forward into the New Testament... Peter understands this very well. In 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's People. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. The New Testament experience of what's going on here. God's people relating to God rightly, bringing about God's purposes, declaring His excellencies just pause and reflect for a second. I'll leave that list up there. What might God be saying to you this morning about how you're living? Surely different things for each one of us, but let's just allow the Holy Spirit. Is there a particular thing God wants to highlight to you about how God's people should live? Let's just wait for a minute. so just to recap, this sort of phase, if you like, of the outworking of God's kingdom, his rule amongst people, was to establish his people in a place, a physical place, a land. But that is not the end goal. It's that that land, that being in that place, a springboard further into God's purposes, of extending the kingdom to the nations. So the place was where they were headed. The purpose isn't just about themselves tied up with God's blessing. But for me, the key element in the whole story is becoming a people, becoming God's people, and working out what that is like and what that looks like. Nonetheless, this bit of the story ends with them eventually getting to the place and establishing themselves there. And all of the things we've looked at about how to live still hold true and would critically determine their success in actually fulfilling God's purpose in that place. And I would like to look at a few other things just briefly here and actually apply it to ourselves Because we can be a little bit too quick sometimes to think we've arrived. We know Christ, we're in a church, this is it. And if you'd entered the land and after the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes and Solomon stuck his temple up to make it God-centered, it would be tempting to think that's that. And indeed, that is what happened. And they became complacent. But entering and remaining in God's place to fulfill his purpose involves at least the following. Overcoming opposition, which continues to pop up. Involves dealing with unbelief. Unbelief goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? Putting seeds of doubt in our minds. The devil's actually got a rather limited set of strategies. And that's one of them. Has God really called you to significantly impact the city of Oxford for Christ? See many, many people come to Christ, whatever it is. Those things can come to us. And we have to deal with unbelief. Obedience and single-mindedness is an issue ongoingly which you cannot afford to let go thinking you've arrived. There's ongoing obedience. There's something about the human heart that means when you've arrived at something and relax, things then just start to go off track. Worship. For the people with Central, they got that right at least to start with, with building a temple. And not forgetting the purpose. Now, in all this, I'm kind of foreshadowing next week, really, because movers and players from other nations did come to Solomon and were influenced and were influenced and wanted to find his wisdom and wanted to know how to live life but it didn't last and as a community of people here and now in Oxford 2016 God's called us together as a people and we're on a journey together but we've not arrived and we mustn't settle down and in particular we've got to look out for these things that are always going to be on the agenda in order for us to fulfil God's purposes. Let's just pause and reflect for a second. What are these things that God might God just be highlighting to, to you? The title of this sort of section in Vaughan Roberts's book is The Partial Kingdom. And it's worth asking why it was a partial kingdom. Well, firstly, it did come to an end. Solomon and setting up the temple and so on was pretty much the high point of the history of what went on here. And it didn't last. It didn't last because lukewarmness and complacency set in. It didn't last because sin set in. And it didn't last because of settling, not being expansive enough for God's purposes. Out or last week about the promises of God are expansive. They're bigger than we think they are. They grow. They grow. You get a hold of the promise of God and it's not a static, effect, static thing. It gets a hold of you and it grows and it grows and it grows. It's always bigger than we think it is. The consequences are bigger than we think it is. And it's like, if, we un- if, they under- if Solomon and the people around him understood this was it, they didn't understand that God's promise through Abraham was for bigger than just that. And they didn't see it. That's the first thing. And secondly, in a real sense, it was only a model for greater things to come. All of the system of sacrifice and so on for dealing with sin was all a model to illustrate and deal with something but pointing to a bigger reality fulfilled in Christ. A lot more to say about that and some tricky theological issues as well which I won't go into now. My real fear is if you look through church history this pattern can happen over and over again. God does something significant, establishes a people in a place at a time, and it lasts for a while and then dissipates for various reasons. God save us from that being our story. Just to finish off, really, I, I, just, I just felt God wanted to highlight two or three things. This may, if, if there's been stuff that's challenged you, great and go home with that and work on it, ponder on it. But um, two or three things I sensed God, and just wanted to challenge, it may just be for some individuals. And I want to pick out two or three key verses from this whole sort of story, really. Joshua, in his sort of final warning to the people, said this. Fear the Lord and serve him with faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you then choose for yourself this day whom you're going to serve whether the gods of your ancestors but as for me and my household we will serve the Lord. I feel like I wanted to Me to ask this question: Are you part of His people? Are you part of His people? Okay. Does serving the Lord seem desirable to you, or undesirable? For God, I want to challenge someone about that this morning. Certainly. Already mentioned it in Leviticus 19, and this phrase comes up a number of times. God told Moses to say to the people: "Be holy, because I." The Lord your God and holy. I feel like God wants to challenge some people this morning over areas of right living. And thirdly again, God's revelation of his glory to Moses. I'm the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin there's an opportunity this morning whether it's for the first time or the 15th, 100th time to receive God's forgiveness because he doesn't change and because he's made provision so